real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. Today, we have another Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu specialist here. Uh, we will be talking about martial arts, fitness, being an author, and many other topics. And for that, we have Tony Chin in studio. So Tony was born and raised in Tofield, Alberta, where his parents owned a restaurant and grocery store. He moved to Edmonton after high school, eventually picked up a job as an armed guard for Loomis Express, which is an armored car service. Tony worked here for approximately five years before becoming a police officer with the Edmonton Police. Tony has worked in patrol, front counter, divisional intel, and now works in a specialized electronic intel unit. Tony is a father, competes in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, of which he has won two world master titles. Tony also has authored a book on his mother's life story and escape from communist China during the 1970s. And the book also made the top seller list for Amazon. And Tony is currently producing a couple documentaries. So welcome, Tony. Well, thank you for having me there. That's uh, quite the list of accomplishments. Uh, Just a, a busy try. guy. <laughs> you try. <laughs> I think that's being modest. Quite a bit of stuff you got going and you're doing well at all of it. Well, I don't know about that. It's in perspective, you know. Like I said, a million, couple million issues short of a million dollars like Harry Potter, but <laughs> I think I'm doing okay. One day, you know, one, one day. day. Um, but we're happy to have you here. Uh, and we're going to talk about kind of a, a wide variety of stuff. Uh, so let's start at the beginning and uh, tell us about you, your background and uh, growing up. Oh, man. I had a pretty sheltered life, actually. I, I grew up in a small town, Tofield, probably about 45 minutes east of Edmonton. I went to school from pretty much kindergarten to grade 12. I actually moved out to Edmonton on the last year to did high school here. But um, yeah, after I graduated from there, I went and worked at Subway for a little bit. and but mostly I worked at, uh, like I said, Lou, Mr. Secure Corps, which is the armed guard, carrying money around for about five years and became an EPS officer after that. Didn't have any college degrees, so I had to kind of work my way up, getting well, it there. Well, I'll, I'll take you back. So what kind of kid were you? Oh, man. I was a pretty, I don't know. I was, a, well, I was, I was in sports, you know, but I was mm -hmm. pretty sheltered. Like my, my mother and my father always took care of me, so gave me whatever I wanted and <laughs> and uh, I ate like crazy. So that's how I became so big, I guess. What, well, do you got any siblings? I have one brother. He's uh, six years older than I am. Never really knew him too much because uh, he was always off doing his own thing. He was mm -hmm. a lot He was a lot older than I was. Well, I, mean, I guess, yeah, six years older, he's going to be, you know, what, finished high school and you're just about to enter high school? Yeah, that's exactly it. He... He always left for a different school by the time I always got there. So teachers always wondering, you know, are you Lonnie's brother? Because I was the only Chinese family there. So they kind of knew that I was, you know, Lonnie's little brother. So, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I mean, 
like I said, he always beat the shit out of me all the time. So. <laughs> well, that's what older brothers are for, I guess. I guess so. so. As long as they take care of you when you need to be taken care of too. Yeah, yeah, we'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was it like in Toefield though? Like, I don't even know how many people are there. Yeah, I think there was 1,300 people or something, 1,500 people when I was living there. And my parents, like I said, owned a grocery store and restaurant, so they're well-known. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up a whole bunch of white, with a bunch of white kids, I guess, yeah. you know? I have a whole bunch of white friends. didn't have really any Asian friends or any sort, so I just kind of grew up with them and became one of the boys. Yeah. So, yeah. What, uh, did you do any of the martial arts when you were a kid? Because you're saying you did sports. My brother actually did Taekwondo for many years. He He got fairly high level and, and I tried it out for oh, I don't know two months and when I was like 14 years old and I just kind of yeah this is not for me kind of thing so oh, really yeah I never stuck with it my brother did and like I said he went pretty high but I never started martial arts until I was 32 I guess oh wow but yeah probably around in that area and that would have been the, your first foray into jujitsu, or did you start with something else? Uh, MMA. I started with MMA. Oh, okay. it was this whole thing was an actual joke. I wasn't even supposed to be doing this stuff, but I was so fat, like I was so freaking unmotivated in my life, and I was I don't know. So I decided to. It's like I needed something to motivate me. Well, I was one of those guys that I need some motivation to mm. kind of do something, and uh, just by fluke, I was watching. Uh, some UFC fight going on at that time. And I told the guy next to me, I said, this is the stupidest thing ever. Like who would go into the ring and go fight each other, you know, for whatever money. And at that time frame, one of my close friends now, his name's Curtis, comes up to me and says, hey, I used to do this. Would you like to try? And I said, why not, I guess. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I, me and him went out there. And uh, he beat the crap out of me for like two hours straight, puked on the ground. And uh, ever since then, I fell in love with it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it kept me motivated enough to say, hey, I'm going to try to do an MMA fight and then graduated into mm -hmm. jujitsu kind of thing. Okay. Well, so back though, when you were in your childhood, um, you're saying a bit and a bit about this, but it'll lead into the jujitsu stuff. Um, you're saying you eat a lot and was there, is it just you didn't have anything going on or you just uh, didn't have that motivation when you were a kid or? Oh man, if you live with a Chinese family, you <laughs> would know. <laughs> the mother always cooks everything. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're not hungry, she'll cook. Yeah. If you're hungry, she'll cook even more. <laughs> I mean, it was nuts. I mean, I remember eating bowls and bowls of rice and I mean, like huge amounts of money a huge amounts of freaking food so i that's just how i grew up you know i grew up and, and i grew up with my grandmother too and my grandmother cooked a lot and um yeah i guess that was my pastime was was eating so you had th three generations in the house i did yeah, yeah that's right okay and uh as you're growing up did you have any kind of influences on you like anybody that particularly stood out or kind of pushed you into policing or, or or a certain direction um or even you know to what? just get out of toe field <laughs> yeah yeah that was probably it get out of toe field i guess no i i, I don't know i mean i guess i uh, 
I gravitated to, uh, towards uh, policing early on, probably when I was 14. I did a ride-along with the RCMP back then when 14-year-olds or 15-year-olds could do ride-alongs. Yeah. It was, against, it was with, uh, who was it? It was like Corporal or like Wilburn, I think his name was. I can't even remember anymore. Clayton Wilburn. I'm almost positive that was his name. And uh, he was such a great influence for me. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, when we did the ride along, I was like, man, I kind of want to do this. Yeah. And uh, that was, like I said, really early on. So, uh, but I, I love the aspect through all my whole life. And I was in cadets for five years too, actually, when I was 12 to 18. I guess uh, I kind of just uh, ran over that. But yeah, I was in, I was in sea cadets. So I, I, I did have the respect and discipline of that. And my parents put me through it. I didn't, I guess I didn't really want to go to it, but my parents told me I had to go. Well, where'd you do sea cadets? Uh, There's no water here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of weird, actually. But uh, I went to RCSCC Nootka. That's where, uh, that's where it was based out of Holden, which was a small town, just uh, a couple small towns away from Tollfield. And yeah, a lot of the kids were trying to get together, and that's where we would do sea cadets, I guess. But yeah, you go sailing at Hastings Lake and do other sea cadets things, I guess. So. <laughs> It was one tie knots. There's a lot of knot, mm-hmm. knot, knot tying. Uh, yeah, a lot of drills. You know, yeah. but whatever. I mean, I did it. <laughs> Were they? Uh, did they yell at you a lot? Like a lot of? Yeah. Was it really strict? I don't know what cadets is like. You know, yeah, you're not an adult. So it's kind of like the military for kids, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, so you march and you, you know, do a whole bunch of these. I guess like a more disciplined version of the guides or boy scouts or something like that so mm-hmm. get you ready for the military but um no it, like i said it was it was strict but it was also entertaining it was also it was fun and every year you kind of go away for a summer camp type of thing and there's a lot of people in, in the eps that actually uh, i grew up with that did uh see cadets kind of thing too so okay i guess it helped me get to get here too so was it um, the sea cadets thing that kind of pushed you into doing the ride along with the RCMP? So, like, how how do you kind of get hooked up with the idea of, hey, I want to go do a ride along with the police? It was uh, it was actually school. It was some kind of, um, I can't remember back then, but it was like follow you know some kind of profession or like mm-hmm. kind of like the whole um, what we have now, like go with your parents type of thing to work yeah. type of thing, right? Yeah. But back then it was like, you know, get a profession and, and try to see if you can follow it for the day kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, yeah, let's try that. So I phoned up the RCMP in Tollfield and they said, yeah, well, come on down at, I can't remember what time it was, but it was like six o'clock PM on a Wednesday or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I spent all night with them. So until around 3 AM. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's kind of really neat. Except for the last part, he was kind of in the office just writing reports all night. <laughs> which <laughs> which is what the job is. Yeah, that's going to be a foreshadow to what yeah. what this job is, I guess. 1% real action <laughs> and 99% just writing paper or memos or briefing notes. Uh, I don't know. There's a million types of piece of paper you can write. Yeah, that's true. And that was back in like the 90s. So, I mean, I, I don't know what paperwork they had back then, but man, the amount of paperwork we have now. So Yeah. <laughs> well, so you go to Sea Cadets. You do this ride along with the RCMP. Um, what's kind of, you know, you're getting into the high school now. What's your, uh, 
what are your prospects looking like? Like, what are you planning on doing in the future? Oh, man. The one thing about my life is I have no plans for the future. <laughs> I, I was terrible in school. I was brutal. Yeah. I, I, all I cared about was basketball back then. I loved basketball, so I played basketball all the time. But I, like I said, I, I actually left Tofield in the last year to be in Edmonton with my brother because my brother said to my, my mother, like, hey, he's terrible at school. Why didn't he come out to Edmonton? And I can help him a little bit, which he didn't, just to tell you. <laughs> If he's listening in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I uh, I didn't have any aspirations. Like I said, I thought policing was really cool to be in. But, I mean, at, at that time, I was I was like, uh, I don't know if I'll go to college. I got to find a job. I got to do whatever. It's like, if I'm going to do this, I got to, you know, I got to work my way up and, and work hard and, and do the things that I need to do. But high school, I was just, if anybody knew me, I was like, I said, I didn't give two craps in the world about anything. You know, yeah. like I said, I was okay in school, but I was never that great either. So, well, so you come to Edmonton and you said you picked up, uh, where was the first place that you said you worked? Uh, Subway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I worked at Subway on White Ave. <laughs> wonderful. The one at like uh, 106th Street? No, oh man. The different no, one? I, I worked on 99, the 99th Street one. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was the, that was kind of like the sister of, it's owned by the same people. So, mm-hmm. Sometimes I'd have to go to that one, but yeah, whatever. Well, what else uh, did you get up to once you moved to Edmonton? Because this place can be, especially if you don't have any direction or you're not really looking for anything. I mean, it's pretty easy to get in trouble around here if you hang with the wrong crowds. Yeah. I always, like said, when I worked at Subway, though, I was, uh, I just left high school at, at that time. And, and uh, I, all I did was work. All I did was wanted to, get money and survive and pay rent. Mm-hmm. I had a few great friends that I hung out with downtown, which I didn't have a car, so I had to walk from White Ave to downtown every night and back and forth, and it was brutal. Uh, you wouldn't take the bus or bike? You would actually walk. Well, the problem is that they knew I didn't have a car, but Subway closed at 2 a.m., and the buses stopped at, mm-hmm. at something like 2 at that time, so I couldn't even get a bus to go from where I worked back to home anymore. So that was, yeah, that was great. <laughs> but uh, all I wanted to try to do is survive, pay bills. I had a, my own apartment downtown. What a crappy apartment building that was. It was a rusty old tub. And I mean, but it was my own place. So that's all that mattered to me. Is it still around? Yeah, it's still around. Uh, uh, it's right behind the Grant McEwen. I can't remember. It was 107... 107, 21, 106 Avenue or something like that. It was such a shitty apartment building. It <laughs> it's was, a rough area for people who don't know Edmonton. It's, a, it's definitely a rough area. Yeah, it was a terrible apartment. But all my friends were there. That's all that mattered to me, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, go party, I guess, a little bit. But I wasn't really a big partier. <laughs> so um, so you're living downtown. You're in the middle of Edmonton. Uh, just kind of day-to-day living life. What? gets you into, uh, what kind of motivates you to get this job with Loomis and then you start progressing into an actual policing career? Yeah, I, I told myself that if I had to, you know, do something I, and be the thing, be the person I want to be, I'm going to have to work my ass off to get there. And schooling was out of the question, didn't have the money to do it. So I decided to go. Uh, after Subway, I worked for a security company for a year or something like that and, and just kind of understood some of the prospects or some of the 
things that I need to kind of understand and learn about security. And uh, it was fun. It was a good time. But then I got a job with, like I said, Loomis at that time. And now it's called Secure Core. Actually, I don't even think it's called Secure Core anymore. But um, I, I, I got a job with them. And that was the one first job I thought I was like, I got to, uh, I'm going to take seriously, you know. And, and it gave me the foundations of, like I said, firearms um, and obviously like something, our safety, because we're carrying around millions of dollars worth of cash. So our safety was a huge concern. And like just understanding some of the concepts of what I had to do for, for policing. And I'm not saying that it got me into policing, but it definitely helped. And I think with all the other backgrounds, all the other background stuff I did in the, when I was a kid, I helped too. also like the cadets and, and uh, like it's security and stuff. So I finally, like I said, I worked there for five years. I, I worked my ass off and I finally got the opportunity to, um, not just like take the test, but or, or, or get the interviews for the test, but but get in physical shape mm-hmm. and um, start studying for stuff uh, for the test and, and doing everything I need to do and take it seriously. And I finally got the opportunity to get there, take the test, and and the first attempt I did was actually in Calgary. And, oh really? Yeah, and I failed it, so that was wonderful. But uh, it was a great insight of what I needed to do. And I didn't really want to be in Calgary anyways. I actually lived in Edmonton. Obviously, I lived in Edmonton all my, all my life. I just thought, you know, my Ca- Calgary may be a, you know, a good stepping stone to be in, you know. I, but I didn't really want to be in Calgary anyways. And um, I, a couple of years later, I finally said, I, I, I finally said, I got to try it again. So I finally tried it again in Edmonton. And by sheer luck and determination, yeah. I guess, I, I got on so. Okay. So what, what did the um, training process and everything look like for you? Uh, for the EBS? Yeah. Ah, uh, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. I mean, I... You would have been out of the Greaseball building at that time. Uh, no, we're still out of downtown. Oh, at headquarters. Yeah, we're still okay. at headquarters at the time. We actually transitioned from the downtown to the tail end to Greaseball. Oh, okay. So we moved all the stuff to Greaseball kind of thing. You know what? The, I still remember the first day of class, they... The first question I think they asked was like, who has a post-secondary degree here? You know, and everybody put up their hands except for like me and one other dude. So, Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So I'm like, oh man, this is going to suck. <laughs> like All these guys have like some college degree of something and I got nothing. So crim law might not be your best subject, but you know, there's always other, there's firearms and, and driving and other things. <laughs> I get, yeah, Chinese people and driving. <laughs> I don't know. Man. <laughs> you can make that joke. I <laughs> That's right. I am Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when you're training uh, out of the headquarters building, though, uh, obviously a lot of people on the job now won't really remember that. Uh, what was that like? Because parking downtown sucks already. So getting there, getting set up. Uh, I know you guys had to run a lot of stairs back in that day. Yeah, I um, I mean, I'm in downtown now. So yeah, parking has not gotten any better. Mm-hmm. But when you're a recruit, you have to park like, I don't know, like 10 blocks away yeah. at some, you know, wherever, trying to find parking and uh, carrying all your freaking stuff with you. It was brutal, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely an eye-opener. I never, like I said, I never really kind of knew what was going on downtown until I got, like, hmm. got to headquarters kind of thing. Because where I was 107, there was still a bad area, but it wasn't congested and crowded. It was in headquarters area, so... But uh, yeah, we 
<laughs> yeah, we. I mean, on a daily basis, you know, you see all everybody like the chief and stuff like that. So you're always saying yes, sir, no, sir, God, yeah. every single twenty seconds there. <laughs> it was, it was fun. <laughs> Uh, back then it was like Dr. Wiles. I don't know if he was, uh, he was a fitness coordinator back then, man. He was a hard ass too. So this is the one they call Dr. Death. Yeah. That's the yeah, one. Okay. Yeah. I only heard the nickname. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He was a, he was a, he was a great guy, but he was hard on us too, but it was fun. Um, yeah, there was a lot of learning and, uh, got confused at every turn and headquarters got lost all mm-hmm. the time. So I still do. I'm down there now and I'm just, I don't even know what's going on half the time. Yeah. Destruction is going on. I'm like, I just found out we have a, there's a cafeteria, not cafeteria, but a, uh, what is it? A food area there mm-hmm. where people are eating. And I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> like, holy crap. Well, yeah, there's a lot of little corners and stuff. I mean, that building was built in the 80s. So it's kind of like, they got like a few little tunnels and, and back stairwells that you're know, like, I didn't even know this door came out this way. Yeah. Actually, the other day, I've been down there for 10 years, my whole career here, and I went through this back hallway the other day. Never been through it. Didn't even know this door came out to this area in the basement. I was like, <laughs> wow. I tell you, man, built from the 80s, you know, you look at all the other buildings, you're like, hey, let's build something that is the most, like, fortified yeah. base <laughs> that you've ever seen in your life. Like, it is so weird looking. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, whatever. So, um, so you get through training and, uh, where do you kind of go from there? Uh, I went, I immediately went to Northeast division. So that's where I, that's where I stayed for like 17 years was in Northeast. I, I loved it there, I guess. And I lived close by and my first place was down by Clareview too. So it was close by where, where mm-hmm. I lived. But, um, yeah, I loved, I loved the North side. <laughs> I don't know why everybody says it's a dump, but I don't know. I love Clareview. And I was there for a little bit. I was a patrol. I was a patrol there for uh, for the first stint, three, four years or something like that. Went to the front counter and stayed there for about three years. And yeah, I don't know. I just kept on. Like I said, I, wherever life took me, that's where I went. I mean, it wasn't. Uh, it was never pre-planned. Nothing was planned. I just said, hey, I kind of want to go somewhere else now. And that's where I went. Do you ever end up with like uh, any major injuries or anything? While you're out there on the street, or yeah, throughout uh, your career, you've been stay managed to stay pretty healthy. I've had a few injuries, but nothing crazy amounts. I've had more injuries in my pastimes than yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> than I did it that I did at work. I mean, obviously, like the never broken any bones or anything, but I've had to take a few days off for bumps and bruises for mm-hmm. incidents that occurred. Yeah. So, any kind of memorable uh, occurrences from your time? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, but there's a lot, but I still always remember, like, I still talk to one of my, one of the, my friends there about that, just going into a, it was a check on welfare call and, and, uh, don't know if you want me to go into it, but. Yeah, if you want. Yeah, just right. check on welfare call and, <clears throat> sorry, and, uh, and, uh, apparently daughter was saying his father hasn't been responding and apparently he's recluse and, and a hoarder type of thing and. We kind of knocked on the door and no answer type of thing. So we're like, oh, okay, what's going on? And the house was dark. So me and a few of the other guys, we go around to the back and the door's kind of open. And we kind of enter into the house 
And then everything, I've never seen a house like this ever. I mean, every room was filled with like newspapers or garbage. Mm. And it was like seven feet tall. Like I can't believe how tall like the pile of garbage were in there. And we thought like maybe you'd be like in this freaking pile of garbage or something like that. So we started rooting around all this garbage, just trying to find somebody. And we find out that uh, he might be staying in the basement because there's nowhere else upstairs that he can be in. So we, we have to walk downstairs in the middle of the darkness trying to find this person. We find this guy laying in the bed naked. And we were like, okay. It's like, oh, I'm pretty sure he's passed away. I mean, he, I'm, we're yelling at him to wake up and he's not doing anything. And we get close, probably like seven or eight feet to, away from this body. And all of a sudden he gets up like a zombie <laughs> and says, what are you doing here? And I'm like, holy crap, that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> like my stomach fell out of my ass. And I'm like, holy crap, we got to start stepping away. It was like, it was, a, it, was, it was one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. It was like a big naked guy just gets up <laughs> and says, Hey, what are you doing here? And I'm like, holy Jesus. Always makes me wonder uh, back when like Walking Dead started yeah. and was a really big thing. Yeah. And I always wonder, I'm like, I wonder if you, know, you get in a scenario like that, if there's ever been a cop who's pulled his gun or has done something even worse uh, to somebody, you know, they're not responsive, not responsive. They look like they might be dead. And then based on the surroundings and everything, you're kind of set in that stage. It's like, yeah, I would imagine this person's dead in every which way. And all of a sudden, they, it's like a deer. And just Their head pops up. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> like, what it is. Holy shit. Yeah, he like literally got up. Like he was laying flat and all of a sudden he got up and he looks at me. He says, what are you doing here? I'm like, what the hell? It's like, why are you naked? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could be whatever you want to do what you want in your house, but still. <laughs> Did he say why he didn't respond to you? He didn't hear you guys yelling? Yeah, he doesn't like us. So he just ignored you he till you were right there. Yeah, he ignored us. <laughs> we were yelling throughout the whole house. I was like, holy crap. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> no, people do strange things. Yeah, apparently. So um, as you're kind of going through your career, I was reading this about you uh, in some of the jujitsu profiles uh, that they had on EPSnet. And I guess you're in there, you're talking about how I uh, used to be overweight and you didn't really have like, uh, I guess a lot going that maybe it was motivating you or driving you. So can you talk a bit about what got you kind of back on track? What got you into uh, taking this on as like a real, uh, I guess, passion of things because you're, you're winning world titles. So that's not, not something you're doing just kind of for the fun of it, I guess. You're, you're in it and you're pretty serious with it. Yeah, freaking, I, I, like I said, I'm, I found early on afterwards, like this whole incident, and like you said, I kind of gleamed over it with, uh, with Curtis and stuff like that, is that I found that I needed something to motivate me, but everything that I did, and, and I think that goes with a lot of people, like not just here, but everywhere around the world, they don't, they need something to motivate them, but they just can't find something to motivate them, and they try, and they try to do different things, but nothing happens, you know, and, and you just don't get that feeling. So, I, like I said, if it wasn't for Curtis coming down in my life, and and like I said, he, he's still one of my best friends to this day, always motivates me, supports me in, in what I do. He still coaches me to this day before all my tournaments. And um, it, it just that fluke, right? The karma that you find that, that you, I don't know, where, where he comes in 
to your life and says, hey, you want to try this? And I was like 300 and I think it was like 330 pounds like at that time. Like that was my, that was my heaviest in my life. And I still got pictures of it. And you kind of go through life depressed because you just like anybody else. And, and food, to me, food is an addic- uh, addiction, right? So mm-hmm. if you get into that addiction, you, it's a cycle. You, you eat it and, and you'll feel bad and you feel more depressed. And it just keeps going and going and going until you know you're 330 pounds and there's nothing you can do. And you feel so unmotivated to do anything. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was willing to try something or do something different and, and fall in love with it, I guess, and, and put all my effort and time to it. Um, and I think that that's just not jujitsu, though. I think that could be anything. It could mm-hmm. be like knitting I guess, yeah. like, or art or whatever. But I needed something that was actually at least physically active for me. And I kind of knew early on, like I said, I loved having goals to have something, you know. And I think a lot of people uh, are the same way as I am. You know, they have to have a goal in mind, an end goal. And my end goal was at that time was not just to be fit because I think a lot of people have these goals like, I want to be fit. I want to New Year's resolutions. Like, I want to lose 20 pounds. Yeah. Most of the time it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, it, the odd time it does. But most of the time it doesn't. You need to have some kind of end goal in game. And my end goal was, hey, I'm going to get into a fight. I'm going to get into an MMA match. That's, I don't know why I thought that. It was the stupidest thing in the world at, at that time to think of. But it was so out of reach that if, if it was going to come true, at least I said that it, it came true. But it was so out of reach that it was probably almost unattainable, I mm-hmm. guess, to me. But I felt that once I started and, and I felt comfortable with it and, I just, like I said, I don't know. I I can't really explain how how you fall in love with something, you know. And I always felt that if I was going to compete in this, not just like jiu-jitsu, but in MMA at that time, like I would put all my efforts into it and try to be a better person because of it. And I think you can do MMA and still be overweight. Mm-hmm. I think you can still be in jiu-jitsu and still be overweight. Because I still train a lot of people that, are, I guess, in some ways overweight, but they're happy and they do it for fitness and they to for have a have a happy life kind of thing. But for me, it's like if I'm gonna do this at a higher level, mm-hmm. I can't I can't be the way I am now. So yeah, like I said, if it wasn't for some people in my life to kind of push me to keep doing better, and that's where it comes from, you know. Well and what what kind of had you in that slump? So can you talk a bit about that? Um, yeah, of course. I, like I said, I think a lot of people go through si- certain situations like this all through their life. And uh, I, I guess, uh, <laughs> I, like I said, a midlife crisis, I guess. But it's really, it wasn't midlife. I was thinking in my mid-20s at that time. <laughs> but I was always a big kid, you know. And weight was always an issue for me. And, I, and um, once it starts getting away from you, like it, it really starts getting away from you. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people that are like, can eat whatever it doesn't matter and they'll still like be looking averagely good you know mm-hmm. but uh for me i mean i can eat a carrot and i feel like i, I gain 10 pounds at a time so yeah. um so weight was always been an issue for me all my all my life and that also includes my my emotional state too mm-hmm. and and i wouldn't say i was like depressed uh, all my life but definitely my weight was a huge concern and i think uh, I talk to a lot of people too, and I, I do believe that 
it's not just me. I think that goes around in everywhere, like my kids and and just this day and age, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. so conscientious about their weight. But I, I like I said, I understand that. I, I really do. And I understand if you are having issues with that, I mean, you have to seek some type of, you know, remedy for it. And I, uh, yeah, like I said, I, uh, once you get bigger, like I said, as soon as you start getting bigger, the depressive state just starts getting worse and worse and worse. Did you have to get, um, did you have to get any kind of help? Like, uh, whether that's like mentally, like, do you need like a, a coach for that stuff? Or did you have to get like a dietitian or is it just, you got into the martial arts and that was enough to kind of start breaking you out of that, that cycle of things? Yeah. The one thing, the one thing about me is like, I, I tend to try to study as much as I can about something. And, and like I said, if I'm going to go into it, it's not just physically, but also mm-hmm. mentally and trying to like understand certain things about my health and, and just understanding like nutrition in itself. And I think a lot of people don't understand about nutrition is that, like I said, certain, just trying to be better, you know, in your life, just to eat a little bit better. And I'm not saying like going, hiring a dietitian or, or getting a, getting a coach of any sort. And some people may need it, but for me, I just found that taking things step, step by step, one thing at a time, you know, at first I'm like, Hey, I probably shouldn't be drinking pop. You know, I was like, yeah. I'm big addiction with pop. You know, I was like, I'm going to stop with pop. But then I'm like, okay, can we do something a little bit less with pop? You know, let's just start with, you know, let's just have water. Let's get the pop yeah. out of the yeah. way. Let's go with water here for next little bit, but still eat like crap, you know? <laughs> but then next step is like, okay, maybe we can help with this eating problem, you know? And, and I think my problem is actually not eating bad things is eating in moderation, like, Mm-hmm. The amounts of food I used to eat was just large. Well, and uh, one thing I would think would maybe be the best way to kind of go about is like small steps, right? I think a lot of people see it as they just have to quit it 100% all at once, which is probably nearly impossible unless you got some insane fortitude right overnight. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, like you're saying, you just, okay, today I can cut out this thing or one less snack in the day and then the next day, let's see what we can work on. Like just step by step. I think a lot of people find that hard to put in that consistent effort. That's yeah. That's probably the biggest part. You are a hundred percent right. Like I said, I, yeah, I think anybody that goes cold turkey, like I said, without some like extreme discipline, like I always think of it like a rubber band, you know, you can, you can pull that rubber band as tight as you want and as long as you want, but it's bound to snap. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, it's that thing's going to snap. But if you can just kind of like said, ease your way into it on a day-to-day basis. And and even though, even not just day-to-day, but a week-to-week basis, you know, like, yeah. it's like, hey, what can I cut out this week that, you know, might, you know, might be a little bit better for me, you know? Well, and even when you're saying like, uh, you started the uh, uh, MMA and you're like, I want to get into an MMA fight one day. And I would see that as almost like the the end goal. And then on your way there, so as you're thinking, like, why would I even think of this? But you need to kind of set that end goal. And now you're going to have a bunch of little missions that build you up to that goal. So it's like, I'm going to start jujitsu. I got to start eating better. I got to do, you know, whatever it is, sleep better. Um, and then as you start kind of picking away at those, it gets you to that ultimate goal. But it's the small missions that are attainable. Otherwise, 
you kind of keep going along and you, uh, you might just keep failing because you're not really seeing the results. Yeah. So, and you will fail. Like, don't get me wrong. You, you will fail. I failed how many times I can't even tell you how many times <laughs> I failed, but, but you gotta, you gotta forgive yourself in that way. And the next day go back into it. And, and like I said, a lot of people get into those cycles that once they fail, mm-hmm. they fail, they go hard. And it's like, I've already failed. I might as well, you know, continue on my path, you know, of eating whatever. Convenient whatever. excuse. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's such a convenient excuse to do that. I I totally agree with you. I, like I said, it's, it's, it's such a humbling experience for me to keep on, like I said, going through and, and like I said, speaking about stuff like that too, because it's, it's a, it's important to me, I guess, to at least keep it in the forefront in my mind. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, I can't stop what I do. It be the day to day grind. You know? Yeah. So, uh, with on the jujitsu side of things, um, who do you train with? And then uh, to get to these world titles, like what was the process to get there? Um, well, the world titles were were a little bit different because. I, I already finished my MMA stuff, my amateur stuff. I got hit in the head a little too many times for my <laughs> likings. And I kind of, and with a few injuries, I just kind of said, hey, I'm in my mid-30s. I probably shouldn't be taking punches to the face so often like that. So, and I've always actually gravitated towards jujitsu anyways. Like, uh, I, I loved, like I said, I loved fighting. I loved everything, the aspects of it, but. I, I did truly love jujitsu, so I kind of it was a natural progression for me to go to, go strictly as a discipline and leave everything else behind, and, and I guess like in air quotes retire from that stuff. But um, that was when, like I said, that was when the road was, was like, hey, what's my next goal? Right, yeah. the MMA stuff is over with, and I did my amateur match, and you know, I, I won't tell you how it ended, but it was. It was actually a good fight. Well, so. I guess maybe that's my my error. I kind of missed this part, but so you, you did do an MMA. You accomplished that. I I'm did. thinking for some reason that comes after, but no, uh, I, I did. I did an amateur fight in Red Deer, uh, and not got paid. It wasn't professional of any mm-hmm. sort, but it was still the same rule sets and everything else. Um, yeah, I did it. I, I I did it. It was a, it was a close match, but ended up with a loss. It was a, it was in a decision match, so I I didn't like how I ended, but. I guess that was how it goes. And yeah. I tried I tried getting back to a second one too, but like I said, injuries really started to pile up then for it. So the one thing I and like I've done a lot of years of martial arts and was around a few of the gyms. This is like long ago in a different city, but around a few of the gyms where um they were training like actual pro fighters. So guys would go fight in Thailand. There was um a few that would fight in the UFC. We had Duke Rufus coming up from Milwaukee and he's training some of the fighters. And the one thing that uh, I never liked about the whole entire scene was you could train, train, train. And some of those guys, like when you're the pros, like you're training, like you kind of slowly starting things like six months out. And then, you know, like a month, two before it's, it's hardcore. Like I only eat this. I sleep exactly this amount of hours. I'm training two, three times a day for six days a week. And then your opponent doesn't show, uh, doesn't show or doesn't make weight or gets injured. And you did all that for nothing. And that's the <laughs> thing that never appealed to me. I was like, I, and back when I was doing this, I was like early 20s. So I was out, you know, partying and stuff. And I was like, 
I can't give up partying for <laughs> six months. Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah, jujitsu is a little bit different that way. Where, like you said, once I once you start getting into it and like start understanding the culture of it, it becomes fairly interesting. And there's a whole subset of like like um, history behind it too, right? Like especially with like taekwondo and karate and all those other martial arts, they have such a huge diverse background and a hit long historic you know brazilian jiu-jitsu is actually very young in, in infancy right mm-hmm. so it, it, historically it's so interesting in, in that time and that leads into my future project that i'm dealing with probably we'll probably talk about that later but mm-hmm. but um uh getting ready for worlds and stuff we in tournaments especially in jiu-jitsu it's it's a it's a kind of like a elimination style tournament so you're doing five, six, seven matches in like a span of maybe three hours. Wow. And everybody's just piling into like thousands of competitors are piling into this thing and they're like, hey, you know, this is the bracket. This is who you're going up against. If you lose, you're out of the tournament. And if you win, you're going on to the next guy, you know? And you get like, I don't know. It starts off with like, you get a little bit longer break because there's obviously more competitors competing and everybody's doing their thing. And so you maybe got like 45 minutes to an hour. Then the next one, if you win that one, you, you only got like 40 minute break. Then the next one, you only got 30 minute break. And the next one, by the time you're like, maybe you got a 10 minute break and you're just going hard for like six, six rounds, five minutes at a time. Yeah. It gets pretty tiring. So was, uh, remember the movie blood sport? Yeah. Was it like, wasn't that like that? I think they just kind of kept going. You'd fight the one guy, yeah, the next the opponent. Kumite. And then you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> People always call me Bolo Young all the time. So that's the the villain in it. Yeah, right? that's yeah, yeah. it's the gigantic Chinese. Yeah, guy. I was gonna say you're you're about the size of that guy. He's a big dude. <laughs> yeah. He's also in a lot of movies. Yeah, he was actually. <laughs> actually, in fact, he's only like he's really, really short. Oh, really? Yeah, he's like he's probably wider than he is like muscly than than he oh. is in height. He's only like you know, like five feet tall or something like that. <laughs> five three or something like that. They just so. kept shooting him in at like an up angle. Yeah. So it look like it's he's kind of like the Hobbit, feet. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're uh, working toward the worlds and can you talk a bit about what that was like going through that whole experience? You're saying everyone's piling in this gym and, and you're doing all these fights in a day. Like what's, is this, that must be mentally draining in addition to physically draining. Yeah, it gets kind of tiring, but the you know what's more tiring is, is training, like day in and day out. And, and like I said, I needed a new goal, so I thought I was like, "Hey, I'm gonna try for worlds." You know, I'm gonna try to get into the master worlds and and, and compete in that 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 highest level that I can be. In. And um, yeah, it was just like eating eating well, and that's when I started like if I wanted to be like the best that I can be physically of myself. I needed to get some help. So that's where I got help from Jeremy, the fitness guy from mm. downtown downtown. And he was awesome. He was he helped me like cater my workouts to towards like what my goal was. He would he would always be supportive. We would get together once uh, once a week or two. And I it's open to all EPS members too. Mm-hmm. Like they're he's always open to help and he's has a background in sport too. So that kind of that kind of helped too. Because my workouts were, like, even though, like I said, I, I did as much research as I can about what I needed to do, I was totally doing like, the wrong things for jujitsu. Oh, really? Yeah, I was like, hey, let's, you know, do bicep curls and bench presses and all the other, <laughs> you know, workout stuff. And he's like, 
why are you doing that? It's like, that's not, has nothing to do with jujitsu. You know, you got to do like more like, uh, like, uh, weight and, uh, like Olympic style lifting, you know, like, like, oh, really? First, yeah. like, type of exercises. And it's like, yeah, you're doing everything wrong, you know? I'm like, oh, okay, sounds good. So he kind of put me on a regiment for like, I was with him for like 17 weeks. Like, he would print me out, like, workout routines and what I would do and stuff like that. So I would almost think, uh, stretching would be like the number one thing to do yeah because someone's gonna potentially fold you in half (laughs) but if you can just bend like that it's like oh you guess you never lose that's true yeah (laughs) jeremy first couple days like your flexibility is absolutely terrible like it's just (laughs) atrocious i could barely like bend over to do anything you know Mm -hmm. so but i guess i'm a bigger guy so it's you know that's more of like smaller type of jujitsu players you know the bigger guys they don't bend as much well, what uh, what's the weight class that you fight in? What is that actual weight? I funny thing is I tried to I try to get down to a lower weight class. Mm. I tried to get down to the super heavyweight weight class for the first time I did it was which was in 2018, and I tried hard. I spent a year. This is when I was like said, getting back into like shape again. Like and it's a different shape when you're like. Like being in shape and then being like kind of like fight shape are totally different mm-hmm. types of shapes, you know. It's like holy crap, the amount of extra work I had to do to get there was nuts. But um, yeah, like uh, just trying to freaking uh, get to that point was really a, a really tough spot. But with the help of like said Jeremy and everything else, kind of just pushed me through. Yeah, and dealing with all that stuff. What is the because you're saying the super heavyweight you were trying to get down to, so uh, yeah, super. Sorry, yeah. That's what did what, you that's fight? Where I was going with. Super heavyweight was where I was trying to do. It was two twenty one, two hundred twenty one pounds. I think it was okay. the category, and I was two sixty. Uh, yeah, I think it was like two sixty. Like three months out, I'm like, hey, I could do this. I can get down to. I can get down to two twenty one. <laughs> Never been to two twenty one ever, except I think probably childbirth. But uh, <laughs> I got down to two thirty. And I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah, I was like, I was like two weeks out, three weeks out, and I was two thirty, and I'm like, I could do it, but I'm like, I was so, I looked so emaciated by mm-hmm. then. So, I ended up, I ended up said, screw it, I'm going to ultra heavyweight. It's the w- highest weight class you can have. There's no actual, high, high, there's no ceiling ceiling on to it. it. Yeah. It's just everybody <laughs> is there. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, so I'll just do that. And I went into the ultra heavyweight class, and I guess it helped me because my cardio was through the roof, mm. like compared to everybody else's. Because I was trying to get down to a, a to a lower weight class, so I was up against like three hundred pound people. Uh, yeah, I think it was like three, some couple of them three hundred pounds, a couple of them were in the two eighties. So they all had like forty to fifty pounds or higher, but to, uh, compared to where I was. But I, again, I think it actually helped me out, like for for the lack of weight or possible lack of like loss of muscle possibly i I gained in cardio so i could go on forever i was like that's it this is keep doing this well i think a lot of people don't realize and this even just kind of plays into policing in general is uh what actually occurs in a fight and i'll even say even in just controlling people because the service like all the police services like to use the nice language but even controlling somebody, uh, that is super tiring. You think yeah. 30 seconds of just like 
complete uh, strain on your muscles. And then depending on the environment you're in, you're, you're stressed. Um, and even somebody who's like a hundred pounds, you know, especially if they're on drugs, I mean, they can be super strong and real kind of squirrely. <laughs> I, so. I tell this to everybody regarding that. I, I've, I have examples, like I said, I keep them, I keep the, the video on my computer on, and I collect them, not just from like all around the world, but I collect them from any of the incidents that happen in the EPS. Mm -hmm. And I watch them over and over again and how fast people get tired. Mm -hmm. And it's not, and I think a lot of people think it's like, hey, if we're just physically in shape, it would be good enough. But I have to, yeah, I have to go against that grain because I'm like, there's a lot about, yeah, being physically fit is great, but I think a lot has to do with technique and, and just yeah. understanding some of the concepts of like grappling. And I, I implore everybody to at least try it. Like yeah. I, I've always challenged people. I could care less, you know, who you are in the EPS. I've always sent emails out. If I've heard that you've grappled or want to do something, I've sent emails out, just blank emails. Hey, you want to go and train? You want to? Yeah. You want to go roll? You want to you want to see how it really is? Because that's how I got into it. Mm -hmm. That's a, if it wasn't for Curtis telling me, "Hey, you want to do it?" Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't be where I am today. So I I encourage and I try to help as many members I can doing that. So what's uh, you've got two of these titles now? What you did one in twenty eighteen? Yeah, twenty eighteen was Gi Masters, and then twenty 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 two. I just yeah, I just, just did it. Just did it in Gi. Well, what happened in between there? Were you still going to the worlds or did you take a break? Uh, it was a combination of COVID. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. Because COVID stopped uh, tournaments for a little bit. And again, same type of thing. You, I actually had a bad injury in 2019. Uh, because 2019 was the year I could have competed, but I tore my, uh, I tore my pec mm. uh, at that time. So I had to get emergency surgery for that. And that put me out for about six, seven months. And wow. then uh, I kind of started getting back in. And when you're like seven months out, six, seven months out, you're <laughs> things are kind of rough for the first little bit. Yeah. But then I think I was in for maybe like six, seven months, eight months before COVID hit. Then everything shut down for a couple of years. So then I come back in 2021, all freaking, you know, demotivated and everything else. So it took me another eight to nine months uh, and if it wasn't for my new school, because I ended up going to a new school uh, in Shore Park mm -hmm. uh, called Frontline Academy with uh, owner by owned by Pedro Lott. If it wasn't for him, I don't think I'd ever probably compete again. He, it, he the school's very competitive, mm -hmm. so they they all like to compete. So and and I was looking for that. And I, I'm always looking for like you know competition. I'm always looking for like to to push myself to push myself. Uh, to be better. So I, I went there and I've known Pedro for a long time, probably the last six, seven years. And um, I just said, ended up saying, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna come to your school for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pedro said, yeah, come on. And, and man, it was a it was a whirlwind because the the first day he, he brought me, uh, the first day I was there, man, he, they destroyed me. So <laughs> it, was, it was a rude awakening of like, holy crap, how far I've fallen at the same time as how much I still have to, still have to gain. And so, and if it wasn't for him, like getting my mindset back into a competition form, yeah, I, I don't know if I would compete it again. So, so on the jujitsu front, what's kind of in the future for you? Still well, competing or going something further? Yeah, I, was, I, yeah, I, I still compete, I guess. 
But uh, you're gonna make a plan right here. Yeah, I'm gonna make a plan. <laughs> <laughs> no, next year, next year I'm hoping to compete because uh, now, like I said, now I'm competing in black belt, so that's a new level altogether. So that's even that's a that's a higher level on top of that, and, and I just got to be better. Mm-hmm. You know, much as anything else is like these whatever these world titles or whatever master world titles, it doesn't mean anything to me. I just I have to be better mm-hmm. in every aspect of it, and. I think it's gonna be a lifelong dream for me to keep going as long as I can. I mean, I'm I'm not very young anymore. Yeah. I may look young, but I'm definitely not young anymore. You don't feel it. Oh, I definitely don't feel it. <laughs> you know, but uh, it, I, I got to keep going as long as I can because I don't know how long this road's gonna give me, and I just gotta go. Yeah. Well, um, I do want to talk about the book that you wrote there, but maybe we'll kind of come back to that because you were mentioning earlier the documentary or you're working on a couple documentaries and this has to do with jujitsu yeah it was um the the initial idea for the documentary actually has parts to do with the book but it was one of those new goals of after the book was completed that what do i need to do so one of the ideas was uh and i'm hopefully be filling my next year Hopefully, anyway, funding. Uh, cross my fingers, funding comes in. But mm-hmm. and I'll be paying. I'm paying most of it myself, anyways. But really, the history of jujitsu in Alberta. Okay. So the the it's kind of like the founding fathers. There's ten people, and I I don't know if you knew, but Alberta is like a really the pinnacle of the uh, of like jujitsu in Canada, like the infancy of it. Oh, like really? A lot of it has okay. to. We're like really the Alberta is really kind of like the fight capital of Canada. Well, when I had uh, Rodrigo in here uh, just a couple days ago, um, so uh, for people who don't realize this, like some of these podcasts, we record them and then we put them out different times. They don't get flipped like the next day. <laughs> but uh, so Rodrigo's in here and he went through a little bit of that. And he was saying like when he came here in 2000, I might get this wrong, but 2007-ish um, and to Canada. And then he was, he came out to Alberta shortly after being on the East Coast, setting up schools and, and helping out there. And yeah, there wasn't much here. And I was thinking like, that's not that long ago. But no. now he's saying there's like hundreds of black belts here, you know, dozens of schools. Like it's it's exploded. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty good. And I think, like I said, especially for Rodrigo, and I love that guy a lot, but for these founders, of the, these founding 10 people that that have their, they, they started in 96, like they got their sorry, they got their black belts in '97, so they're probably training in the early '80s, mm-hmm. '90s. You gotta remember this: if Rodrigo comes in, there's nobody here. These guys were fighting whoever they can, you know. Yeah. Like they, there's nobody, there was nobody to fight. They would have to go all over Canada just to find people to fight in a sport that nobody knew anything about. Like UFC wasn't really. It was kind of a thing, but not really a thing, you know? Yeah. It wasn't like the pinnacle of where it was when, like, the Chuck Liddell to George St. Pierre era where mm-hmm. there's everybody starts influxing in. Yeah. These are the times where nobody knew anything. Everybody thought it was, like, a bunch of cockfighting going on, right? Mm-hmm. So, but uh, these founding 10, like I said, if it wasn't for these 10, like, I don't know if a lot of these other schools could even survive because they really brought people in. They they what created jiu-jitsu in Alberta. So that's why I kind of don't want to touch upon really i wanted to touch upon like the history of Alberta and, and brazilian jiu-jitsu but also just give props to the 10 people here um of what they did you know and how they did it where like where do you go for funding for that kind of stuff 
Oh, I don't know if you if you know <laughs> you tell me. Uh, most of the stuff I'm funding myself, it's just these pet projects I have. It's one of those, uh, hey, what can I do that I don't know anything about? And you know, like I said, writing a book was not. I don't, I don't write a book. Like I said, I barely passed high school. I mean, <laughs> but I I did it because I felt like there was a need for it. And mm-hmm. Not and not just for the people to read it, but for my kids for that time. But I got the resources I needed to uh, to write a book. But it, my name might be on that book, but there was a team of people behind me. So well, yeah. like I said, what's my next project? It was, hey, let's start work on filmmaking or documentaries kind of thing. And like, where do I start? So I don't know. It's probably going to be another three, four-year four year project on top of that. But like I said, I have no clue what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just doing whatever I need to do. And you know what? Maybe that just keeps it more on the fun side than the necessarily the stressful side. Because you're not, you know, you'll see it to the end when you get there. But um, you're just kind of feeling out the process. That's like when I'm setting up this podcast. Yeah. Trying not to make it such a stressful thing. Even though there are some things that we got to deal with that are, <laughs> but uh, for the most part, it's like, man, I just, I just come in and get to talk to cool people, like. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of neat to yeah. see where things kind of lead to. Yeah. I would think maybe for funding, you might just talk to like some of the schools or if those 10 people are around, maybe they are interested in funding it. So yeah, that's true. Maybe going to them. Did you have any back, uh, side note, do you, yeah. did you have any background in podcasting before this? No, none. None? None. Yeah, so. I always avoided the camera. Never <laughs> wanted to talk. But uh, again, it's like seeing a need for something. Um, I kind of explained that in like a, a prelude episode I put out like way, way back, like months ago, Yeah, just explaining like the reason for the podcast, um, and, and why we kind of took up this venture. Yeah. Uh, and then it's just, yeah, it's like a voice for the front lines, getting people in here, learning about people, but also then we talk about current events. Right. And, um, I get to ask questions that I know the frontline guys are kind of wondering, yeah, yeah. but don't necessarily get the FaceTime or the time in general to ask or have these discussions with people. And it's nice because you're getting it straight from that person a lot right. of the time. So, you know, um, I'm not a huge fan of Twitter. We have a Twitter account, but I just have it just so like I've taken up that kind of space. Hmm. Nobody else is going on and pretending to be me, hopefully. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you don't get anything for doing this anyways. But um, yeah, like Twitter and and then just headlines in the news. Everything, yeah, yeah. Everybody just reads like two, three lines and they take things at face value. It's like, we need way more in-depth kind of discussions on things Yeah, and uh, give people a platform too to kind of flesh out their ideas right. and explain things. And it's like, you can't get that when you're watching a political debate. They got like 30 seconds or a minute to talk and everybody's yelling. And I was like, that's just not real. Yeah, this is definitely a good avenue for sure. So, so, yeah, no, I, and like the documentaries, I think would be a super cool idea. I imagine a lot of people would be interested in that because people like to know their history, right? And to have that documented somewhere yeah. um, would be good. Try and get it into the, uh, what is it, the uh, provincial archives? Yeah. Maybe that'll be in there someday. I don't know, man. Like you said, I'm just trying to get this thing produced, let alone, I don't know what the hell is going on afterwards with it. So I would even say like, I would look at like some students go to like a film school here and just say like, Hey, are you interested in shooting this? Like you can find lots of people that want to jump on projects that necessarily, um, 
maybe you don't have to pay them big bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great idea. But I'm doing everything myself, like how I did with the book and stuff like that. I'm just learning and understanding yeah. all the concepts of what I need. I'm buying all my own equipment. I'm doing mm-hmm. all the stuff that I need to do. Again, it's going to look like probably, <laughs> like I said, I'm trying, I, I don't, I try to do the best I can, whatever I can, you know, so I'm not going to stop until it looks the best. So That's good. Yeah. Um, let's talk a bit about the book because I got you for a few more minutes. So not to rush through this, but I do want to make sure we cover the book because I think it's pretty interesting how you documented your mom's history. Uh, can you start with how she kind of either like recorded these the, the history, or is it just like word of mouth? Does she write stuff down? And, and then how is that passed on to you? Um, well, it first started because I've already kind of knew the story from when I was a younger kid because my mother would tell me because she would constantly yell at me saying, hey, you know what I had to do to get you here? Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm like, uh, sure, whatever, mom. <laughs> but uh, she always kind of told me like the Cole's notes of what happened, you know, had she had to swim across part of, you know, whatever. And... As I grew up, I never really appreciated it until probably my late 30s where I said, hey, that's when the project started was probably when I was 36 or so, 35, 35 maybe. And uh, uh, I said, I had two daughters, two young girls, and I said, I couldn't repeat. I couldn't repeat my mom's story because I don't know enough about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they grew up, what am I going to say? You know, they just she swam across part of the ocean to get to, I didn't even know, you know, technically where at mm-hmm. that time. So I was like, well, I got to start making these notes, you know, to find out what this is so I can keep at least a, some kind of a retainer of information for my daughters when they grow up. So I paid some kid. And I was like, hey, I need some kid to... Um, record this like have interviews with my mother like the basic interviews basic questions and i hired a, a volunteer at the eps during that time frame his name is craig gordon thank you craig um for doing this for me and he had interviews with my mother at that time for a little bit i would get together with him and uh, tell him like hey i need more information about this so after he was done with it, I looked at it and then I, I did the most the detailed work of the interviews just to make sure I got all that stuff done. And that was it. Notes was all this was supposed to be at the end. Mm. as like a detailed recollection of, you know, the incident. And then I said, hey, this would be a really cool novel. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, if I, if, you know, if I could get this out there, you know, have a book form, then my kids would even be, you know, it'd be even happier. It'd be greater. So then I took the endeavor of like, hey, I'm going to start writing this story out, you know. And, you know, <laughs> even though the story is like, it was self-explanatory. Like how, how my mother, you know, grew up, you know, in a, in a uh, wealthier family at that time frame. You know, losing everything to a communist uh, regime government that came in. And then fighting for her life and, you know. Uh, like starving, you know, millions of people starving, and then finally taking the, you know, a long journey or swim from eight hours from where she was to to Macau. Uh, it's a it was a natural story to be told, you know. Mm-hmm. I just had to put it in order. I just had to make sure everything was in order. I had to make sure, you know, all the details were right, and and make sure that it kind of, you know, it read half decently well. So 
that story wasn't like I said, it, I didn't make this thing up. It was such a, it was an easy story to tell. Except that, like I said, I, I had a team of people behind me to help me out. I hired a huge group of people to oversee like what I was writing, how I was writing it, you know, because the last thing I needed was my mother telling me, hey, you know, my story was great, but man, you wrote it like shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, that'd probably be the biggest disappointment, you know. Where where do you, like, if I just have a story in front of me, like a bunch of stuff on paper, where do you go to find uh, a publisher, an editor, and then somebody to put it all together? Like, how do you even start that? Oh, the internet. That was a wonderful yeah. start. No, it's it, just searching? There's a, you know, you, you have to, First, like first, you probably want to get it reviewed. You know, you want to hire people to, not just you can always get friends to do it too, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, can you read my book? You know, it's like, and tell me how it is. But more likely, you're gonna get two reactions. Hey, it was really great, even though it wasn't. Yeah. Or B is like, <laughs> I never took it seriously, so it's all shit. You know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so I hired I hired reviewers to take a quick like a a, a detailed look into this and it's like, tell me what was wrong with it, you know? And they would tell me, hey, I didn't like this. I didn't like that. I didn't like this. And and you can't take every reviewer by by face value, but if you can take a large conglomerate of these reviews and say, hey, everybody's saying that this is an issue, then you know what? You probably should try to fix that part, you know? How much, is, uh, how much do those people cost? It varies, you know? you know? If you want to, you can find people that are for like really affordable, like, you know, read a book, 40 bucks. You know, mm-hmm. you can find people that, you know, for $200, you can get like a really detailed review, you know, really? what they felt. Okay. Like. I was yeah, thinking it'd be way more. Yeah. Well, when you do it 10 times over, that yeah. <laughs> gets kind of expensive <laughs> then. But uh, there's always people that, you know, willing to do anything for, you know, money. Yeah. They're reading. It's like, hey, I love reading. Uh, hey, want 30 bucks? I'll, I'll read this book for me. It's like, and tell me what you feel okay. about it. You know, you don't have to give me any, you don't have to give me a detailed report, but mm-hmm. just tell me if you liked it or not. And that's what I kind of kept on basing my stuff off of, right? Like, it's like, what you didn't like about it? Oh, it's too long, you know, with this part. You know, I was like, okay, I, I kind of agree, you know? And, and you kind of you kind of have to look at it yourself and read it over, like, hundreds of times over and say, hey, yeah, you're right. I don't really like this, you know? And yeah. I should probably change this kind of thing. Yeah. But, yeah, then they, and like you said, you, then after that's done, then you're like, hey, maybe I should get some editors. And there's like, there's like four different types of editors. There's not just like one editor. There's like, there's like line editors. There's grammatical editors. There's like finishing editors. Like there's a whole bunch of these editors out there and they all do different jobs. They're not just one editor that does everything. If you wanted to get a good job to be done, you need to hire all these editors too, you know, for your own personal project. And like I said, if you're, if you're getting it published, if you're getting it published out, out by like a large company kind of thing and they have you under contract. They have their own, their own guys to do that stuff. Okay. You know? Did you end up going that route? No, I did so Actually, this... I was in talks with them for a while, but with, okay. with a large company, but I just ended up going by myself on this one. Hmm. And I paid all my guys to do it. So I paid all different people to do it. So, so then when you kind of edit it, get it to like where you're like, okay, I think this is good. Yeah. I'm done. Yep. Uh, now it's just who wants to print it essentially? Yeah, I guess so. Well, there, yeah, there's, um, there are uh, sites that you can uh, just self-publish and do everything. Like Amazon's a big one; they have mm-hmm. their own big publishing company and stuff like that. Oh, but okay. there's, yeah, there's like 15 of these companies out there that deal it and just have a platform for you to to sell stuff. Mm. So, 
just the daily grind of going out and, like I said, promoting your book or doing whatever. But it was really more of a fan project for me to get the story out. And it was the word of mouth that that really made it successful, not me. <laughs> so when you um, put the book out, uh, do you determine, like, so your book's on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Do you pick the platforms you're going to sell it on or does it just go to like a publisher and then they kind of put it out to they kind of put it out like they yeah. generally you do it yourself but there are places that help you just disseminate everything for okay. you like for to deal with all that stuff kind of thing do you get to pick the price your book sells at yeah well or, yeah. No, no yes and no i guess <laughs> you, you can set a price i guess but there's really a like the cost of all the production of everything too, right? There's a minimum cost, right? You can't sell it for like a dollar or whatever, yeah. but it depends. Ebooks are different too, I guess. But but you, yeah, you you set like a, a sale price if you want to sell, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. You can, and, and you can set a price within something, hmm. you know, reasonable, I guess. But So do you, out of like writing a book, and if I'm getting too detailed, uh, let me know, but can you get like... Do you get royalties from writing books? Like if you, is it like each book sale you get a piece of or do they just kind of like pay you a flat amount and then it's royalties after that? No, it's all royalty based. So the more books I sell. uh, Right from number one. Yeah, right from number one. Wow. There there are contracts with larger companies that that don't pay you or or pay you very little royalties, but they give you something up front. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the reasons why I didn't either. So, but Again, it was it was through the pandemic too, and I kind of just wanted to get that project out and finished with. It was like a six-year project that I wanted to yeah. get finished, and it was during pandemic times. Like I said, I was ta- on talks with one of the bigger companies, and it just never. Uh, it was the beginning of the pandemic, so at, by the time they weren't, a lot of these companies weren't producing anything during that time, mm-hmm. or, or very little of it. So I just said, "Screw it," and that could have been like, that could have been another two years of talking just to kind of get that. Yeah, sort of. So I wouldn't be able to see the book out in production for like another two, three years from there, and that would depend be dependent on if they wanted to keep all the story, parts of the story, or whatever, right? Because they would have full, or sometimes they would have full rights to some of these things too. So, um, are you able to see where your book's selling the most, or how it's doing in certain parts of the world? Yeah, they have. I'm only in North America. Mm. I mean. Uh, I'm only in, in, in some China, parts of Europe. China wouldn't sell your book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're probably on a list somewhere now. Yeah, I probably won't be able to go back there. So <laughs> I was, um, but uh, yeah, you can somewhat, like once a month, once a month, you can kind of see, you know, what's going on kind of thing. Okay. You know, kind of what's, but like I said, it, as much as, <laughs> much as I'd love to have like a million editions out, you know, kind of thing, it was, uh, it was successful enough for me to say, hey, you know what? You know, I did something. You yeah. know, like tens of thousands of copies of books is not bad. You know, so yeah. Do you, so do you know like the total you've sold already? Uh, probably combinations, probably into the like I said maybe tens of thousands. Maybe. Jeez, that's a lot. So yeah. I don't <laughs> know how really many good. tens of thousands. Because a lot of it sold off me too, right? A lot of people was like, "Hey, I want to buy a book off you." Like, oh, okay. And and yeah. I had a whole bunch of like I had a bunch of uh, um, promotions right that I had to go to, and it's just and I think I had like. 400, 300 books or something like that and sold off all those books kind of thing. But I... So you, like, you did uh, kind of like a book tour? Yeah, like a yeah. book tour kind of yeah. thing. Uh, like I said, uh, in Tollfield, they were like, hey, why don't you come, you know, and, and do this. <laughs> like, okay. And I uh, brought my mother with me. <laughs> and 
uh, yeah, like two or three hundred books and sold them all. So, and like I can't remember the exact amount because I was just trying to gather my books I could get there. Yeah. And, but yeah, did that a few times. So, I, and a whole bunch of people buying books everywhere here and there. But you're like the, <laughs> you're like the guy selling his mixtape out of his trunk. Yeah, I'm like a peddler. <laughs> <laughs> Except you open the trunk yeah. of his books. Someone's yeah. like, is this guy for real? Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> How? Um, well, I looked this morning. I think you on Amazon. You had like. 97 five-star reviews. So that was pretty good. And yeah. what's your uh, mom's feedback on all this? Oh, God. I was like, that was probably the hardest part of the whole thing. You know, it's like, God almighty, make sure. She can't read English. She oh, speaks English. Okay. Yeah. Like she speaks yeah. English, but she can't read English. So mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, please, you know, like this book, <laughs> you know. But everybody else, I give her the reviews all the time. I let her, I, I translate the reviews and I send it to her. Yeah. So just to try to gather favor and say, hey, you did a great job with the book, even though she can't read it. Mm-hmm. But I've given, I've read her the book. I've given her the details of the book. I've given her the details of what's going on. There's a couple areas that I had to, I had to rearrange some of the order a little bit just for how the story, for story's sake. But nothing changed. Like events are 100% accurate to what she's given me and, mm-hmm. and for the research that I've given too. But um, yeah, I, you know, in some ways, I, yeah, she probably... She's probably flattered and, you know, and I guess um, likes it, I guess. Yeah. But she'll never tell me that she, uh, <laughs> come on. <laughs> it's like, she'll never say that she's proud of me or anything. I was going to ask you if you, uh, I guess it won't work now, this joke, because she can't read the English. But <laughs> I was going to say, like, you made her buy a copy, though, right? You still got to get that extra <laughs> sale right. in there. I got to get the extra sale in there. I had to get her to buy a dozen books, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's pretty good. And um, is there any plans for any other books? Like, are you going to write your own story kind of thing? Yeah, about how boring my life was for the last freaking 40 years. No. no. Uh, you know, like I said, I've never, I never wanted to be a writer. Don't want to be a writer. I, and a lot of these people make, there a lot of writers, which I give a lot of respect to because I've met a lot of writers over the last little bit. They, they make a lot of their money through subsequent books. It's mm-hmm. not the first book that they make money off. It's, like, it's usually like the series of books and they make money off of the other books that they create and mm-hmm. make a buzz off. And, and as soon as you get an audience for that, they'll may look at other books that they've written previously, right? Yeah. So I'd, I have no endeavors to, uh, <laughs> to write. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I was thinking about doing another one, you know, bringing back the team of people that I had. and and, and But the story had to really kind of... Um, uh, hit me, you know? So I was like, I haven't, I have found a couple stories that I'm like, I'm really willing to, you know, put my effort into, but, uh, and there's a lot of people that's come up to me recently over the last couple, over the last year when I released the book saying, hey, you know, my grandfather, my mother, you know, did something similar, mm-hmm. you know, from different parts of the country, right? Like all over parts of the country, not just China. Yeah. And, Tell me about that. And it's like, oh, I really wanted to write a book about them. And it's like, there's all so many different stories out there, mm-hmm. you know. And I think if you just kind of look at anybody in Edmonton, I think there's tons of stories that could be written. Yeah. Because everybody's interesting, you know, in that way. But um, I've had a couple stories that I thought, you know what, maybe interesting to do. But the time and effort needed to do it is a lot of time. Yeah. And my, so my idea was, like I said, like, how do I continue with the, story or, or continue with the idea of what I want to do in my life. And so that's why I went went into like 
trying to do this documentary because the initial documentary is not about just BJJ, but also continue on with my mother's story too and, and bringing other Chinese people or Asian people that mm -hmm. have gone through something similar because that was the initial idea to do the documentary was was to do um, uh, immigration, like part yeah. like Chinese immigrants doing the, because not every, a lot of people have done the same thing my mother did too. Yeah. So trying to get like three or four different people from all over Canada, interview them, do the same thing, and maybe get it out to the masses kind of thing. Yeah. So that was well, the idea. I had an idea for a, a project more to do with like military police, but I think it'd be along the same lines. Um, but I'll tell you about that off air because uh, like I'm that. not having anybody steal my idea. <laughs> so, but maybe it's something that, um, and, and talking about how this process of getting books out there and, and everything is uh, really interesting to me. Um, so yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, but I think we're kind of coming up to the end of our time. Yeah. So is there, I want to make sure you get a chance for people to kind of follow you and what you're doing. Do you have uh, anywhere people can follow like, social media or websites, uh, anything going on that they can, you got to go fund me for documentary. Oh, well, yeah, that's a great idea. I should go fund me actually on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm on Facebook under my name, Tony Chin. And, um, same thing with, uh, same thing with Instagram. Uh, you can follow that. My book is called the freedom swimmers, a uh, soaking story. You can get on any of the platforms, Amazon and any of the stores should be there. And, uh, like I said, hopefully the next couple of years I can get this, uh, and get this uh, documentary done. But uh, that's pretty much about it. Cool. And I'll, and I'll put up, um, when we get the episode up, uh, all in the de description area, I put all the links. So we'll put a link. So your book's up there and can link to some of your social media and stuff. So people can check you out through there. I uh, want to say thanks for coming in today. Well, thank you very was, much for having me. Uh, great stories. Um, I think it'll help a lot of people too get them maybe out of a funk and kind of get back on track with their lives. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's good. If you need any help, just like I said, I'm always there by email. You can always email me if you need anything whatsoever, anything. And I'll always try to help. So, Cool, man. Okay. We'll wrap it there. Thank you. Thank you.